Well, I think we can make this week's podcast very short. I'm just going to zoom through. You know, the the news is uh, uh, interesting, but it's it, it can be summarized this way. This is This Week in Common Sense, the weekend podcast of Paul Jacob, where he talks about the big stories that have appeared in the news this week and on his website, thisiscommonsense.org. Here we go, Paul Jacob. On Monday, we talked about Congress bullying tech giants, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Google. And, of course, I'm not any big fan of those tech giants. In fact, I've... Uh, you know, gotten rid of my Twitter account. Uh, but this will be next month. They're going to be called again through uh, Congress and uh, put on the hot seat and bullied, in essence, for the third time, I believe, in the last five months uh, since the election. Uh, and and that's that's what our Congress does. They bully people trying to get them to censor other people so that they can squelch speech in America. Now, uh, meanwhile, we're not paying attention, as we learned on Tuesday, to the fact that China, the Chinazis over there, running that country of 1.4 billion people, uh, have all kinds of influence in the United States. They've established these Confucius Institutes, We've found all kinds of people, professors on the payroll, getting money, not reporting it to the United States government as by law they're supposed to. We found a New York City police officer uh, higher up, but not uh, not the chief who was on the payroll of the uh, Chinese Communist Party, which I call the Chinazis because they're not really communist. <laughs> they're really about go make some money, we're kind of a criminal fascist gang and, uh, and we, we run the, the town. And by the way, don't anyone anywhere speak out. And uh, so we, we talked a little bit about the fact that Biden has pulled back a Trump executive order. Uh, and it was one of many that were all pulled back at once. But, you know, maybe this is one that shouldn't be pulled back, that we should know the influence that's being exerted on U.S. campuses. And we've talked many times, Tim, about what's happened in Australia, where there's a lot of Chinese students and where campuses, it's tough to say anything that's not pro-Chinese unless you want to be shouted down. And the administration of different universities, this has been true in the U.S., it's just Australia is ahead of us, unfortunately for them, on this particular thing. But we've had incidents in the U.S. where uh, someone making a statement about what the Chinese are doing in Hong Kong, stomping on people there, or in uh, Xinjiang, uh, Xinjiang uh, uh, with the Uyghurs and, and, you know, what they did with Falun Gong and continue to do and so on. Uh, but, but, you know, as people point that out and say, hey, wait a second, they're being pushed by not only the CCP, but by their own university that is becoming more and more excited about the money that's coming from, ultimately, the CCP. Uh, so 
that's kind of interesting. And of course, the CCP isn't the only uh, group out there trying to silence folks. There's also Senator Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut. Of course, you might remember Blumenthal, uh, close observers of politics, because he's, he, he was the attorney general in Connecticut. He ran for the U.S. Senate, won. He's a Democrat. He won the primary, won the, the election. Didn't seem to be any big deal. But of course, he's the same Democrat who for years talked about his service in Vietnam, and then it turned out that he had no service in Vietnam. These are the people, these are the people who run our country. These are the people who run our country. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, oh. <laughs> but what he wants to do is uh, he wants to stop uh, anti-vaxxers from being able to say things on social media. It's all this, if it's not the accepted party line, like we live in Soviet Russia or communist China or today, Chinazis, Chinazi uh, China. Uh, this is this is a really, really uh, insane view that we just the answer to everything is to shut everybody up, to stop everybody from speaking, to end debate about issues of science or medicine or politics. That's the opposite direction of finding the truth. And the, if you look at the, you know, step back and look at history, the Enlightenment was a good thing. The, the fact that people were able to use science and reason, that they didn't just have to follow the church, which of course was going to be enforced by the king, that was going to be enforced by the church, that was going to be enforced by the king. We have it better. But it all of a sudden, we've reached this modern insanity point. Um, and instead of the, you know, uh, the what was it, the Tower of Babel? Was that where everybody spoke in different languages and couldn't understand each other? Well, now we have leaders throughout the, the world. Maybe this is the Great Reset. And they're all speaking the same language, it seems. You know, I've been very uh, Paul Revere-ish about... Chinese Communist Party is the biggest threat in the world and and been singing it and screaming it and so on, because I think it is. And and I think it's important we recognize that. And sometimes people have looked at that and said, oh, that's, you know, that's kind of some macho American. Not that there's anything wrong with macho or American, but uh, but that's some, you know, patriotic blind the u.s against the the our competition or whatever and that's not where i'm coming from because the second biggest fear i guess i have is my own government and its same lurch constant lurch constant lurch which historically is not any surprise. No one's surprised that governments want to shut up people and shut down information and hold it all and not tell us. And this is what this is how people do if they can. And government is power and sometimes the power to do exactly these things. So in essence, our government, one of the biggest problems with our government and the the poster behind me with uh, with with Eric Edward Snowden. I was going to say Eric Snowden, uh, his brother Eric. 
No, uh, Edward Snowden. Um, our government wants to be China. They want to behave that way. They want to control the population that way. And maybe not every little nuance, but that's where they're headed. And here's the problem. Maybe they don't have the same kind of thoughts in their heads today in the U.S. Congress that the Chinese Communist Party or their 25-member Politburo or Xi Jinping have in their heads about what they could do to the Uyghurs. Maybe that's not in anyone's head in Washington at all, anything like that, let's hope. But here's what we know about human nature. We know that the more you have power, the more you have the ability to control other people, I always think that the more you will use it and then the more you will abuse it. I always think, what if you were given just massive power, nearly omnipotent power? You could just smash anyone to smithereens at any time. And you're a really nice person. And so you're going to use that power to the good all kinds of times and so on and so on. But are you never going to have a bad day? And once you do have a bad day and you smash somebody, you bully somebody like uh, Mr. Cuomo, uh, the governor in New York is accused of doing to a few people. He was bullying him only to hide statistics about decisions he had made. And, re and well, I'm, I, I don't want to go on, on the Cuomo thing just yet, but, but uh, we have to have a society in which the public controls the dialogue, the politics, in which the public is engaged not as spectators paying a cable bill, which, by the way, used to be or six or eight or twelve dollars and is now two hundred and fifty or whatever. Um, that's not what we're supposed to do. And in China, they don't even want spectators hitting some vote thing. You're completely divorced from it. But in the U.S., they still have, and in most of the world, there's still the pretense of it. We need the reality of it. We need the public to be engaged in such a way that you just can't, you cannot silence folks in the way that they're talking about. You can't consider these sorts of things. Um, and, and, of course, after we talk about Blumenthal going after uh, the anti-vaxxers. On Thursday, we talked about two Democratic congressmen, Anna Eshoo and uh, Jerry McNerney, and they sent a letter on official congressional letterhead. They sent a letter to cable companies around the, around the country. And basically, why are you running Fox News? Why do you have one America network on your on your channel or in your service. Uh, this went to Apple uh, uh, and Roku. Uh, I don't understand any of this stuff, but we have a Roku. Um, and so, the, you know, these are this is the kind of thing where it's like um, this is bad behavior. If you do it as a private citizen, this is outrageous, outrageous, evil tyrannical behavior as a government official because the gun underneath the table is there. They know that you have the ability to legislate, 
to, to make a phone call to a regulator whose budget is determined by your votes. This is power politics. And unfortunately, as we've talked in recent weeks, the media often, you know, enjoys watching the power politics and reporting on it. So they don't point out how doggone dangerous this is. But um, this is another sign that, again, our, you know, it's not just the fences around the Capitol building, which people on both the right and the left are starting to get very tired of and starting to speak out against, as well they should. Um, because that's outrageous. They're not necessary. That's not the best way to secure that area. And it's, I think, it, it, the whole impetus behind it is to try to create the, you know, a, a lot of hype that allows them to do other things that people don't pay attention to. Um, but having said all that, we have kind of fallen asleep on a few little things here. I've been pretty pro-Biden in terms of his China policy so far. I've, I've been pleased that he hasn't backed off things. Here's one where he has backed off and needs to do something, the Confucius Institutes, and, and monitoring what they're doing in, at U, U.S. universities, especially because you've seen all kinds of wrongdoing in terms of people not following the law about filing reports and, and being public when they're at a public university handing secrets to a, a foreign power that has a million or maybe two million people in concentration camps. I just, you know, some of us have a problem with that and it is the law. Um, but have, having, uh, having that problem, having our own government trying to silence us in just about every imaginable way, at least Saturday is term limits day. And you may think I'm totally kidding because, of course, we don't have term limits on Congress and we desperately need them. But we do have term limits on the president. Uh, February 27th, 1951 uh, was when the 22nd Amendment was ratified and gave us presidential term limits. Washington did it. He stepped down after two terms. First president set the set the example, a very uh, small R Republican action, limiting power. And that held for 142, nearly 150 years, till FDR in 1940 ran for and won his uh, third term. Um, with the Depression and, and you know, government gaining all kinds of power, interesting that that was when uh, you saw that, that limitation, that tradition fall by the wayside. And I think any good tradition that you want to keep, you want to put in the Constitution. Um, and we need to put congressional term limits, of course, in the Constitution. There's a lot to celebrate. 15 states have uh, state legislative term limits. Uh, 36 states uh, have gubernatorial term limits. Uh, we have term limits for in nine of the 10 largest cities in the country and in thousands of, of thousands of officials, hundreds of cities, maybe maybe a thousand or more. So there, there's been a lot of growth, but the, the problem is doing it for Congress, and they're not going to limit themselves. So U.S. term limits, as people who, who uh, either get the email or went to thisiscommonsense.org on Friday, uh, has uh, launched a campaign to have a term limits convention. The states, 34 of them, two-thirds, can call for a convention. They set it up. They propose an amendment. 
And then it takes 38 states, three fourths of the states to ratify that amendment. Um, and we need that. It's uh, the truth is we need more than that. But we desperately need some holding ground to not allow Congress to be as professionalized and career oriented as it is. And, um, you know, the, the debate on term limits, we can continue to have it. It's fun uh, because the pro term limit side wins and wins again and wins again. It's it is one of the most unifying issues um, in politics today and for decades. Doesn't matter if you're on the right, left, in between Democrat, Republican, partisan, not so partisan. People love the idea of people not monopolizing seats of power. That, look, um, we have government power because why? Well, because we're afraid of private power. We're afraid that, you know, so-and-so will get uh, a gang together and all of a sudden our neighborhood's terrorized. That's why we want to, to unite together, a lot of us, so that we have enough collective power to make sure private power centers can't overwhelm us and we can have rule of law and a nice civilized place to live, you know, and, and gee, who knows, free market, they'll think of other fun things to occupy our time and then to, to secure some, uh, some of our money. Uh, so where am I going with this? What, what was I just? Uh... Well, you're talking about term limits. And it's term limits uh, day on Saturday. Basically, you went through the whole argument for uh, how people want term limits, and there is a way to get them, and it's through the constitutional amendment process, though I'm a little murky about how this is going to work in this specific case. It is a term limits convention, which is a constitutional convention, the first one we've had since the first time, right? Yes. Yes, this is a, it's a convention, um, like any others, and there's all kinds of arguments about what would happen because it's never happened before. Um, and it's unlikely that it would happen this time because Congress is going to realize, oh, they're at 27 states or they're at 29 states or they're at 30. They got to get to 34. Um, you know, all of a sudden that is uh, in striking distance. And Congress might say, hey, why don't we take the wind out of their sails by proposing an amendment? And at that point, uh, they might think they can get away with proposing some very weak amendment. And I think the term limits movement continues to go to 34 states. Um, so there's a there's a back and forth and it's never happened before. So it's hard to know exactly what all the rules will be, because there's there's no prior thing to say, OK, here's where the rules are. But I think term limits, one of the one of the values of it as an issue and as a reform they used to they used to kind of uh, uh, give us a hard time that uh, term limits is a meat axe uh, approach that it's you know it's just throw them all out it's not thoughtful and so on um, but it the truth is with reforms the key is that they're transparent that people see what's going to happen and that those in the back rooms of the Capitol can't do something to play some games with them. Uh, that there aren't workarounds and so on. And and it's one reason why campaign finance reform, other than usually being a bad idea and, and the better idea on if you want to get money out of politics is smaller districts, not trying to regulate billionaires and millionaires and, and little guys and so on, 
to somehow fix it just right for for whatever. That's been a disaster. But term limits are simple and straightforward, and you know what you're going to get, and you get open seats. And open seats are seats in which no one has an advantage from having held power. So that's it's very cleansing in that way. It's not the ability to just keep parlaying the power you hold today into power tomorrow and power the next day. The most outrageous thing in my mind in terms of uh, any congressional you know, longevity thing is the Dingle family. Um, John Dingle, who served from Michigan for 60 years, something like that, 59, 60 years, representing a, a suburban Detroit uh, area district. He took over for his dad, who had held the district for, I think, 20 years, something like that. His wife, now he's passed away now, but his wife now holds that district. So a dingle has held that district for closing in on a century. One family, three people, a century of controlling that district. And, you know, I don't particularly like his politics. I guess if I just thought he was the greatest and, and they all three were just the most wonderful people ever, you know, maybe it would color my view of it. That's just not a good thing. It's not a good thing for anyone. And uh, and it, it's why when you think about it, you know, there's all kinds of different constitutional provisions and laws and debates that happen throughout the history of this country that are important and that colored how things move forward and, you know, made us more free or less free or what have you. But I think perhaps the biggest of all of them was Washington stepping down after two terms. Had Washington decided he wanted to be president, I mean, the, the truth is, had Washington decided he wanted to be king, he probably could have, you know, made it happen. He certainly could have made a heck of a of a uh, an effort toward it, um, and especially if he's willing to sh share power with the nobles. Uh, but but that's not what he wanted to do. And had he wanted to stay as president, the whole idea of a powerful president would have been kind of grown from the embers because, of course, in America, we didn't want a king. We didn't want a powerful, too powerful president. And yet there was a recognition that you, you did need a functioning government. These were very, these were business-oriented, savvy guys who wanted to do well in the world. And they didn't, you know, they, they wanted a government that functioned and didn't get in the way. Anyway, um, had, had uh, Washington been more of a Fidel Castro, America wouldn't be here, wouldn't be here for us, wouldn't be here for the rest of the world. And um, and but he wasn't. And, and that's that's huge. It's the it's the sort of thing that I think can make a big, big difference. It also one of the things I like about term limits is it encourages people, I think, to move up and uh, and not good people will get stale in the same position term after term. And in our present system, um, you know, it, it, running for another office when you're an incumbent and can hold that seat is a very risky thing to do. Well, you went through the week pretty fast. 
I did. I did. Record time, 25 minutes or so, less than 25 minutes probably. Wow. Any questions? Yeah, I do have some questions, actually. Uh, <laughs> I, knew you, I, I started to say that, and I did say it. But as I started to say it, I thought, oh, no, Tim, Tim's going to ask tough questions. Well, <laughs> I, actually, well, you were saying something, and, 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 you were, and you mentioned the smaller districts are a good way uh, to prevent a problem that is of money in politics. But it looks like it's a good way around gerrymandering, too. I mean, this is gerrymandering is a huge issue for Democrats. And... Smaller districts could be sold as a solution to gerrymandering. Uh, they they are a solution in part uh, to gerrymandering, uh, and it's it's um, it's interesting because I support as opposed to the current congressional makeup, uh, where you split up the state and you have uh, you know eleven reps from this state and they're all from different districts. Um, one of the things that a group I used to be on the board of Fair Vote. Uh, advocated was splitting up the state and having multi-member districts. And you could do stuff like that that would really completely change uh, any real ability to gerrymander and I think would be healthy and, and lots, for lots of different reasons and in lots of different ways. Another way to do it is to have those smaller districts. Um, but I think that what, what you're looking for, and this is, it's, it's so funny because it's so pitiful, but we are a representative republic, a representative democracy. We use democratic means to protect our freedom, and we send representatives to the seat of government to make those decisions. And I don't know anybody who feels like they're represented by our representatives. And it's just a huge problem. And in in all my years and working in different lobbying in different states and so on, a lot of states, the, it's just the bigger the districts in the states, the more it's like, who needs you guys? Get out of here. Who, you know, we, we their power, they're fat, happy, and powerful. And the places where I've seen grassroots can matter are places like in New England, New Hampshire especially, a 400-member house where the average district has 3,000 constituents in it. Um, that's that's a place where if people are bubbling about something, you know, the legislature is going to know and going to be addressing it. And that's a huge difference. And, and so we've got to find representation. It's also possible, I think, and you could even do hybrid things, although, you know, it, it's difficult enough to get anything done in politics. I don't think it's so critical that it be, you know, some perfect, you know, uh, formula to, to do it. It needs to be along the lines that instead of 700,000 people, in a congressional district, it needs to be closer to 70. And I say 70 as I wouldn't want it to be much higher than that. You don't get the, the benefits. And some of the benefits are you live with these people. This is, you know, it, it, look, it, you, if you're in Los Angeles, you live with, you know, the, the 700,000 people closest to you, too. And some of them, there may be, you know, New York or L.A. or Chicago, there may be 700,000 people in, a, in an area that you could drive in 15, 20 minutes uh, around and see everything. These, these are districts that are just 
so huge, though, you don't know the people in that district. So it's not just a, you know, a longing for more rural districts. It's that if these districts are small enough, if they're if they're 70,000 or 50,000 people, you're talking about a few blocks in New York or L.A. And you're talking about smaller. You're talking about, you know, a, a small town that might have two reps. So maybe if that town is split racially, one of the reps is, you know, they feel like better represents them. We'd like to see them we'd like to see people not associate that with skin color or or ethnic uh, heritage or what have you. But but there's all kinds of ways that if you split it up, you get more diversity, you get more opportunity for someone to represent you. And when you're talking about multi-member districts in a bigger pool, you get the same thing because the person who gets the third most votes in our current election is gets nothing. In fact, the person who gets the second most votes gets nothing. Whereas in a multi-seat race like that, if you're electing three people, you have six U.S. congressmen and you elect three from one half of the state and three from the other in multi-member races, then you're going to get that that minority position is going to feel like so-and-so, even though they came in a distant third, is my rep. I relate to them in some way. And, and not that there isn't any relating to people now, because there are, um, but but in a way where you would expect some some real connection. For instance, um, if you were in trouble that you might call your congressman, and I don't mean you're in trouble and you made contributions, and so you might call your congressman. I mean, even if you didn't make contributions, you might call your congressman because it's a problem with the federal government and you would you would know that there, he's only dealing with so many people. That sort of connection is not there at all. And uh, and again, you know, someone might look at, well, we don't want too much connections. Look, it's the best of all possible worlds. If you want to buy a law in Congress, if you want a tax break that's going to help you out, if you want to spend money and get things done in politics, now is a wonderful time to do it. And if they passed 16 books, you know, 57 feet of new laws on campaign finance reform, it's, it'd be the same. It would be the same. The folks who can afford the lawyers and the accountants would be doing just fine. And it would be like so many other regulations designed simply to keep the little guy, the upstarts, the poor folks away. Well, there you are. A friend of mine, in fact, a friend of mine who passed away not too too many months ago, uh, urged me. He really thought that I was onto something. Not that it was my idea, but but I brought it. I mentioned it to him that I was onto something with these smaller districts and urged me to talk about it more. And I I mentioned to him. I said I will try, but I said it's tough because it's not out there. It's much easier to react to things happening in the news. You know, they print a story, you've got all the quotes, you've got everything there. And, and sometimes people, you know, you can take that and you can make a point, but it's the, the, there's no real movement to speak of for smaller districts. There is some movement. It's just hasn't, hasn't gotten to much of a point yet, 
but we do need to find ways to talk about it more because I think it's the most it's the most simple and straightforward path to a system in which you're actually getting represented. And uh, and I have to say, as someone who just loves term limits um, in every way, shape, and form, all good, no downside. Um, you know, <laughs> someone once you know sometimes people laugh. Well, what about if we lose someone good? And I always say, well, when that happens, let's let's look at it. <laughs> so anyway, uh, but but I think smaller districts, you know, term limits won't do enough. It will do, uh, it will, I think, revolutionize in many ways. It will create huge open seats. I was going to mention earlier, um, you know, every year Michigan, which has the shortest, strictest term limits in the country, has the most competitive elections. Since they passed term limits in Michigan with the, the toughest term limits, every year, every time, every cycle, they're the, they're the, they're the uh, state that has the most uh, competitive elections, closest, um, most seats. I don't think they ever have a, a seat that isn't contested. I mean, that's so, um, you know, anyway, I don't know why I, why I went on that tangent at that moment, but I meant to say that earlier. So to appeal right now, Democrats would have a different reason to go for smaller districts that is more representatives. That's what you're really saying is more representatives. Uh, smaller districts uh, than Republicans would. Republicans are out of power, so they might like to hear something like, well, you know, the power of AOC would be diluted if there were more more people to compete with her in the Congress itself. Whereas Democrats could, I mean, would be, the, what I said before, the gerrymandering issue would be less less uh, less of an issue. Yes. And, and, and so that's one. And the money that. issue. And the money the issue. The money issue. So that's two huge issues that Democrats allegedly say they're against. I actually don't believe them. I don't think they care one bit. I mean, some regular Democrats do, but politicians exactly. like the money in politics, and they like gerrymandering. I don't. I don't believe there's any reason to believe otherwise. They just know that normal Democrats don't like those two things, so Democrats talk about them. Republicans do that same thing, of course. Yes. I mean, if 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 you could elect the the Republican base or the Democratic base, both would scare you on some issues, but they would, you, I mean, they, they do believe in those things, I think, whereas the politicians, issues are a means to an end. Um, you know, they, they, politics isn't about issues. Politics is about them being elected and them making the decisions. Issues are these troubling things that they have to deal with from time to time, or wonderful things that they can use to their to good effect. Well, that brings me around to what we started with, which was uh, suppression of alternative ideas, that is suppression of dissent, suppression of opinion. Where did all this anti-free speech mania come from? I mean, that's, that's sort of a question. I, I sort of think that it was laid ground in the environmentalist movement with settled science. As soon as settled science became a meme, I think that the seeds of anti-free speech were very, very strong. And I think you wrote about that a long time ago because it's been obvious when they've tried to squelch the opinions of anti... People who don't believe that global warming is going the way they think it's going. If, if there is anything that's not settled, it's science. To say... I mean, the whole idea of science is to, is to constantly test and test and test and... And, you know, to prove the hypothesis, it, maybe it worked the first 200 times you did the experiment. Let's do it 201. 
and and so to say settled science is isn't sort of insane and uh but i think you're right a, a lot on that i it seems to me that there's also the ability to you know the, the, this fear like like the whipping up all the fear of conspiracy theories and it's you know part of the problem with conspiracy theories and part of the problem with free speech is is and then the, the desire to clamp down on it i think people trust the media less and less and less for for all the right reasons because the media will lie to us is lie too strong a word no it's not but it's not always lies in the sense of there were 10 things that happened and we lied and said there were five it's more lies in the sense of it's always a certain narrative and if this story doesn't fit the narrative we're pushing oops that story doesn't exist. I mean, th this last election, where the fourth largest newspaper in the country has a bombshell that turns out to be true and accurate, and it is just they're they're like deplatformed and they're I mean, this is an aggressive effort to hide the truth. And and media, Twitter, other outlets can say, well, we didn't know. Well, you behaved horribly for a situation you didn't know. Um, that's, and, and, you know, well, we've, we've gone into, we did several, uh, several scripts where we talked about the fact that not only did the media lie and cover up the truth, they then invented or helped old hacks from the CIA and the NSA invent this ridiculous story that there was, this was Russian disinformation, which they just made up. I mean, they just made it up. So, uh, so that's we we when you when you want to just make up the news, it gets very irritating if people can just say whatever they want. Yeah. And it's it's like what was this app recently? Clubhouse or something? I think was the app, and it got loose in China, and some people were adding Clubhouse in China, and then were conversing. Um, freely, because I guess somehow they or they thought freely. I'm not so sure that it ended up being freely, unfortunately. But but um, and immediately, you know, you hear all these people talk about, well, they've they've gained a lot of wealth. I'm sure that the people are very pro, you know, CCP. And uh, and the tr truth is, boy, the complaints just flew. And so every indication is when allowed to speak out. Uh, no, the Chinese don't like being living in a surveillance state where they have no freedom. They do like nice stuff and they like food, but you know what? N nobody else created that. They work to get those things. And so just like in our own society, if we think that we've got cars and, and, you know, microwaves and, and, uh, you know, whatever the latest gadget is, because the government's, you know, that's not who created those things. And in fact, uh, you know, if they get out of the way, maybe all those things would happen faster and cheaper and better. Um, and there is a role, but the role isn't in creating those things or in allocating those things. The role is in protecting the creation and the allocation 
and the enjoyment, protecting other people's freedom to live as they want, not to dictate how they live. And that's where term limits comes back into it, in the sense that we want people making these decisions who are one of us, who don't view themselves as separate and part of this political class, making the decisions for all the unwashed flyover masses and so on. We want people in there who are thinking, well, this is going to, this is going to be tough on businesses. I, I know, you know, I'm going to be back running a business here in a few years, or I, this isn't going to help at the university hospital where I practice medicine when I go back and am practicing full time. And of course, anyway, it's, it's, it's the whole concept of government. And it's one of the, it's one of the other things I love about the issue of term limits is that I think it focuses people more than any other popular issue in my lifetime on the basic concept of government of the people and that we aren't looking for government to be experts and superstar legislators who, who work and fight through the night against special interests to write just the perfect law that makes everybody happy and their kids all go to college and become doctors. It's, it's, it is basically someone who goes and takes their time to bring their community's input on decisions that we make in common so that everybody can go live their own life and find their own road to happiness. That's what we want people to do. And that's why being part of a community and not being a big shot politician in your own mind is really more important than your brilliant knowledge of how to write a press release and, and claim credit for things you didn't do. Okay. Well, I'm not going to claim credit for this. Uh, this is all on you, but you did good <laughs> under 45 minutes. Oh, wow. That's just amazing. Are we under 35 minutes? We're under 45 minutes. Under 45. Well, that's good. That's still if I had 35, it would have sounded better, too. But <laughs> anyway, okay. we can wrap this up. For the last week of February 2021, on behalf of Paul Jacob, my name is Timothy Verkula. You can find everything you need to know about this podcast, about Common Sense with Paul Jacob, where to go online to find podcasts, videos, and much more at thisiscommonsense.org. See you next time.